Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable his honor, her honor, your honor, Hello and welcome to the June 5, 2017 edition of Just In Case. This is the podcast of criminal law cases, Just In, from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today, I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after May 15, 2017. But first, I want to take you back to 1923, Forest, Mississippi, where a baby girl named Doll Ree was born to a Cherokee cattleman and his African-American schoolteacher wife. Dolly, or Dolly as she was sometimes called, was one of seven children. She was a strong-willed girl who became a single mother at age 15 when she landed in Cleveland and fell in with boxers and racketeers. She was married for a while to heavyweight fighter Jimmy Bivens, known for defeating an impressive number of world champions but never getting a title fight himself. Fast forward, 1957. Dolly is divorced from Bivens, She's working in the Cleveland gambling rackets and living in a rental house with her daughter. A man she'd been letting a room to had left his things behind, and Dolly was cleaning up after him so she could give the room to her daughter. In the process, she discovered some dirty pictures. As her lawyer would later explain to the United States Supreme Court, And the situation was that while she was cleaning, Uh, this room, she found these things, a couple of books and so on, together with some of his belongings in the dresser drawers. Her testimony and the testimony of her corroborating witness was that they took these things out of the drawer. And these particular books, the obscene literature, was in a brown envelope, a paper bag and that when they took these things out, they saw what it was, and she said to the girl that was helping her, look at what terrible things men read, let's put it away. So that they took these things and put it in a brown box, a small brown box together with his socks and a hat and things of that sort. Sometime after that, the house of a local numbers racketeer named Don King Yes, that Don King, was bombed, and the police started looking for a person of interest. An anonymous caller told the police this person might be in Dalry's house. And so one spring day, Dalry finds several police officers surrounding her house, demanding to be let in. She calls a lawyer who says, ask for a warrant, and if they have a warrant, you've got to let them in. Here's what happened next. This Lieutenant White came and showed a piece of paper And Mrs. Mapp demanded to see the paper and to read it, see what it was, which they refused to do, so she grabbed it out of his hand to look at it, and then a scuffle started, and she put this piece of paper into her bosom. And very readily, the police officer put his hands into her bosom and removed the paper. And thereafter, thereafter handcuffed her while the police officers started to search the house. 
The officers found the man they were looking for. He was later cleared of the bombing, but they didn't stop there. They searched Dalry's house top to bottom and also found, you guessed it, those dirty pictures, which, by the way, Justice Douglas would later describe as four little pamphlets, a couple of photographs, and a little pencil doodle. And so, Dalry is charged with possessing lewd and lascivious books, pictures, and photographs. She goes to trial and loses. She's sentenced to one to seven years in prison. She appeals to the Ohio Supreme Court and loses and ends up in the United States Supreme Court on a cert petition challenging the constitutionality of the Ohio Obscenity Statute under the First Amendment. And that's what most of the oral argument was about in this case. The justices seemed to have a great time toying with the prosecutor about whether mere possession of obscenity was always criminal, even if the pictures were held by libraries or scientists. Here's just one exchange between Justice Frankfurter and the Ohio prosecutor. I haven't seen these exhibits. Well, I think I have to, but I'm sure that all those libraries, or most of them, have books that in their contents would be condemned if by a fellow under obscenity statutes as selling obscene books. I cannot believe that the University of Ohio or the University of Cincinnati hasn't books that I shan't mention them here, lest they be material. I, and if, if that were so, if any one of those libraries contained the obscene books and pictures and the hand-penciled drawing that are to be found as exhibits in this case, then I, somebody should be arrested. In the end, Dalry's obscenity conviction was reversed, but not on First Amendment grounds. And that's because the Supreme Court took her case as an opportunity to decide a different constitutional issue one that had been raised and argued by her lawyer, but really almost as an aside. That issue was whether the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule applies to the states. As you might have guessed by now, Dalry was Dalry Mapp, and her case was Mapp versus Ohio. Remember that piece of paper that Dalry and the officers fought over? This Lieutenant White came and showed a piece of paper. It wasn't a warrant. This was a warrantless search, and the Supreme Court held that the fruits of this warrantless search should not have been admitted in Dalry Mapp's state prosecution. Here are Justice Clark's concluding comments for the majority. Having once recognized that the right to privacy embodied in the Fourth Amendment is enforceable against the states, we can no longer permit that right to remain an empty promise. We can no longer permit it to be revocable at the whim of any police officer who, in the name of law enforcement itself, chooses to suspend its enjoyment. Our decision, founded on reason and truth, gives to the individual no more than that which the Constitution guarantees him, to the police officer no less than that to which honest law enforcement is entitled, and to the courts 
that judicial integrity so necessary in the true administration of justice. And now you know how Dalry Mapp, a mixed-race woman who demanded a warrant from white officers and fought them to see it, before the Greensboro sit-ins, before the Freedom Riders, before the March on Washington, came to be known as the Rosa Parks of the Fourth Amendment. May 23rd of last month was the 60th anniversary of the search that led to Map v. Ohio, and June 19 of this month will be the 56th anniversary of the decision. Dalry Mapp died in 2014, but her legacy lives on. Happy birthday, exclusionary rule and many more. We can but hope. With that, let's dive into some new cases, starting with the United States Supreme Court. Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions is an immigration case. Mr. Esquivel-Quintana was a 21-year-old lawful permanent resident from Mexico living in California when he was convicted of statutory rape for having consensual sex with his 16-year-old girlfriend. The Department of Homeland Security sought to remove Mr. Esquivel-Quintana, who'd been in the state since he was a 12-year-old boy, because of that conviction. Whether he was removable hinged on whether California's statutory rape statute criminalized sexual abuse of a minor, as that phrase is used in the Immigration and Nationality Act to trigger removal. But the INA doesn't define sexual abuse of a minor, and so to compare the elements of the California crime with the elements of the INA crime, the Supreme Court looked to what it calls the generic form of sexual abuse of a minor. In California, statutory rape is having consensual sex with anyone who is both three years younger and under 18. So, for instance, it's a crime in California for a person who has just turned 21 to have sex with a person who is about to turn 18. This statute the Supreme Court held is categorically broader than the generic crime of sexual abuse with a minor. Generally, or generically speaking, sexual abuse of a minor, when it's based on the age of the minor alone, is defined as sex with children under the age of 16, not 18. Because California's law covers more conduct than the law that triggers removal, Mr. Esquivel-Quintana is not eligible for removal. And we've got one more case from the High Court showing us how the categorical approach to predicate offenses works. And that's all from the High Court for today. We're still waiting on several opinions to be released this month, so check in again in two weeks for more. For now, let's move on to the Tenth Circuit. United States v. Pollard is a gun case. Mr. Pollard had a gun. He also had a prior municipal conviction for domestic battery. He was charged in federal court for violating 18 U.S.C. section 922 G9, which criminalizes possessing a firearm after having previously been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. But federal law defines misdemeanor crime of domestic violence by reference to domestic violence offenses that are misdemeanors, quote, under federal, state, or tribal law, end quote. The definition doesn't mention local, municipal, or city law, even though local laws are explicitly referenced in other parts of the federal gun statutes. And so the question in Pollard was whether a municipal DV conviction triggers the federal gun prohibition. It does not, said the Tenth Circuit in Pollard. 
Mr. Pollard's municipal conviction was not a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence for purposes of 922G, and his conviction gets reversed with instructions for the district court to dismiss his indictment. You'll want to know Pollard when advising clients about their gun rights, but Pollard is also a good case to know when you have a question about statutory interpretation and how to do that analysis. The court discusses several interpretory rules and reminds us that its job is to say what the law is, not what the law should be. In United States v. Petty, the Tenth Circuit rejected Mr. Petty's arguments that the Tenth Circuit pattern jury instruction on reasonable doubt is constitutionally flawed. Mr. Petty's argument, which was supported by an amicus brief on behalf of both NACDL and the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar, was threefold. First, the pattern instruction's firmly convinced language suggests a lower standard of proof than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Second, the pattern instruction doesn't completely communicate how heavy the government's burden is and that it's a greater burden of proof than is required in a civil case. Third, the instruction doesn't tell the jury that reasonable doubt may arise not only from the evidence presented, but from the lack of evidence. The Tenth Circuit held that the instruction that the defendant wanted to clarify these points may well itself pass constitutional muster, but so does the pattern instruction, says the Tenth Circuit, and thus Mr. Petty loses. United States v. Simpson L. is a restitution case. Here the Tenth Circuit found no error in the district court's decision to amend Mr. Simpson L.'s restitution order based on what the court found to be a material change in Mr. Simpson L.'s economic circumstances. These kinds of restitution amendments are statute-driven, so take a look at Simpson L. if you've got a restitution amendment case and want to know how the Tenth Circuit interprets the court's obligations under the law. And that's the news from Denver, which means it's time to head on home to Kansas, where the fox kits are just starting to come out of their dens to go hunting with their parents. All you urban farmers out there, lock up your chickens. We've got several published cases from the Kansas Supreme Court this time around. I'm going to try to hit the high points and then leave it to you to track down the cases you think might be of further interest. In State v. Davis, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. Davis's capital murder and other convictions and life sentence, rejecting sufficiency, prosecutorial misconduct, suppression of a confession, and instructional claims. But the court did reverse Mr. Davis's rape conviction as multiplicitous with his capital murder conviction. In State v. Robinson, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed another murder conviction, rejecting evidentiary, misconduct, and sufficiency claims. On that last issue, Mr. Robinson argued that the evidence was insufficient to convict him of aggravated burglary, which is entering or remaining without authority in a building in which there is a human being, with intent to commit a felony or theft or sex crime. In Mr. Robinson's case, the evidence was roughly that he went to the victim's house for a date, had sex with her, killed her, and then stole property from her. His point about the burglary was that by the time he stole the victim's property, she was no longer alive, and the presence of a human being element of aggravated burglary was not met. 
The Kansas Supreme Court agreed that the victim of an ag burglary must be alive, but the court went on to find that the evidence was sufficient for the jury to have concluded that she was still alive at the time Mr. Robinson formed the intent to take her things. Mr. Robinson was sentenced to the hard 50 by his jury, and he raised a couple of interesting appellate claims in relation to that sentence. First, he argued that the district court erred when it refused to allow him to ask questions relevant to sentencing during voir dire or to reopen voir dire before the sentencing phase. The state objected to any pretrial voir dire on sentencing issues, arguing that Mr. Robinson was trying to backdoor in mental health and mitigation issues that weren't relevant or admissible at the guilt phase of the trial. The Kansas Supreme Court agreed with the state on this and held that the district court's voir dire limits were reasonable here, but the Supreme Court also held that we do not formulate an absolute rule that a party in a criminal proceeding may never make inquiries that touch on mitigation. And so when it comes to these bifurcated hard 50 trials, take a look at Robinson and think carefully about what sorts of questions might be allowable and effective for selecting a jury that is not only going to pass judgment on the defendant, but may also decide his or her sentence. Lastly, Mr. Robinson argued that the state did not give him sufficient notice of its intent to seek the hard 50 sentence. Before trial, the state had said during plea negotiations that if the parties didn't reach an agreement, the state would seek the maximum penalty, which might include the hard 50. At voir dire, the state seemed to back away from this line a bit and suggested it might not seat the hard 50. But after the conviction, the state made it clear that it did indeed intend to ask for the hard 50. But the case did not go right to sentencing. Instead, the judge scheduled sentencing for a month down the road and then continued it again, and so ultimately the defense actually had more than four months after the state's intent was clear before sentencing actually happened. No problem here, says the Supreme Court, and the court reminds us that Under the current statute, the hard 50 notice can be oral. It can be made after the trial. It doesn't have to take any particular form. Lesson learned, if that penalty is statutorily allowable, assume it's going to be on the table. State v. King Philip Amon Ruel is an appeal from the district court's denial of the defendant's motion to withdraw his no-contest plea to capital murder which he entered in exchange for the state's agreement not to pursue the death penalty. King Philip is the defendant formerly known as Philip Cheatham, whose original capital murder conviction and death sentence were reversed for ineffective assistance of counsel a few years ago. On remand from that appeal, and after much counseled and pro se litigation, King Philip entered a no-contest plea, and then a week later moved to withdraw it. The district court denied the motion to withdraw, and the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed. This is a really fact-specific situation I'm not even going to try to describe, but it's a case to look at if you want to see a detailed analysis of how the courts are going to consider whether a difficult plea in a difficult case has been entered knowingly and voluntarily. In State v. Bailey, the court rejected Mr. Bailey's challenge to the classification of his pre-guidelines crimes as person felonies, reminding us that under the Keel case, that's K-E-E-L, decided uh, about a year and a half ago, I think, a pre-guidelines conviction gets classified as either a person or non-person offense by comparing the criminal statute under which the prior offense arose to the comparable post-guidelines criminal statute. Bailey's priors were properly classified and his sentence is not illegal. 
but the court did remand the case for reconsideration of a restitution order, which looks like it resulted from clerical error. I should note, Mr. Bailey was convicted back in the 1980s, and so this restitution remand is a great example of the rule that clerical errors may be corrected at any time, even decades after they were made. State versus Dietges, that's D-I-T-G-E-S, is another one of those kind of messy post-conviction cases. Mr. Dietges filed a motion to correct illegal sentence, arguing that the jury instructions in his second-degree murder trial were flawed. As I know all of my listeners know, you can't use a motion to correct illegal sentence to raise ordinary trial errors. And so the district court denied his motion. On appeal, Mr. Dietges argued that, well, okay, the district court should have construed my motion to correct illegal sentence as a KSA 60-1507 motion. The Kansas Supreme Court refused to bite, A 60-1507 motion would have been untimely, it would have lacked merit. Any way you look at it, you lose, said the court to Mr. Dietges. Finally, last Friday, the Kansas Supreme Court decided four more motion-to-correct illegal sentence cases. I'm going to whip through these, but just keep in mind, if you're dealing with one of these motions, there are a lot of cases coming out on what kind of relief is possible under that statute, and be sure you're familiar with them. In State v. Swafford, the Kansas Supreme Court tells us that the time limit for appealing a motion to correct an illegal sentence is 30 days, not 14. So Mr. Swafford's appeal was timely. But the court rejects Mr. Swafford's claim that his consecutive sentences were ambiguous or otherwise illegal. In State v. Donaldson, the Kansas Supreme Court granted Mr. Donaldson Dickey relief on a motion to correct illegal sentence, holding that the district court improperly classified Mr. Donaldson's 1990 Kansas burglary adjudication as a person felony. In State v. Collier, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed the denial of relief on a motion to correct illegal sentence, holding that Mr. Collier's prior offenses didn't need to be reclassified under Keel. He was not entitled to Dickey relief, and Keel's rule for classifying pre-guidelines convictions does not violate Apprendi. Lastly, in State v. Kingsley, the Kansas Supreme Court reminds us yet again that motions to correct illegal sentences can't be used to challenge the constitutionality of a sentence. And that is our sentencing survey for today. Thank you to Oyez for the Supreme Court sound clips. Oyez is a multimedia Supreme Court archive at the IIT Chicago Kent College of Law. Visit Oyez at oyez.org. And did you know that you can subscribe to Oyez on your podcast catcher and get recordings of all of the oral arguments happening at the court this session? I hope you enjoyed this episode of Just In Case. Have you got something to say? Did I get something wrong? Email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Rest you to cutter, give me pizza cutter. Just in 